Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Raj Hasodia. Dr. Raj Hasodia is a professor at Babson College. He's the Franklin Olin Distinguished Professor of Global Business. He is the Whole Foods Market Research Scholar in Conscious Capitalism. Raj co-founded and is co-chair of Conscious Capitalism, Inc., And he's the author of books that I'm sure you have heard of, Firms of Endearment, How World-Class Companies Profit from Passion and Purpose, and Conscious Capitalism, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business. Raj, welcome to the show. Thank you, Cheryl. Happy to be with you. It's so great to have you here. So it's the middle of the summer. Where are you right now? I'm actually sitting in a temporary office. I'm in the process of moving to Babson College. Ah. So I'm still not moved into my regular office. So I'm, I'm just occupying a temporary space here. This temporary. is in Wellesley, Wellesley, Mass., which is beautiful. Oh, nice. Wellesley is a great place. Yeah. So, so being temporary, kind of being in between places is always a bit unsettling. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, so let's kind of get right into kind of where you got interest in the whole concept of conscious capitalism. Well, it started for me, Cheryl, with my work as a marketing professor. I have been a marketing professor since uh, 1985, so that's, that's about 28 and a half years or so. And uh, for a lot of that time... I did research on marketing productivity and performance. Mm-hmm. In other words, looking at what we spend in uh, in marketing and what we get for it. Right. And uncovering some rather disturbing trends in that over the last uh, five or six decades, let's say going back to the 40s or 50s, if you look at the overall spending on different areas of business, uh, we found that we have become much more efficient and effective when it comes to manufacturing or operations that we've also actually become more efficient and effective when it comes to management, all of the overhead kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But the third big area, which is marketing, all the customer-facing uh, areas, we actually find that companies are spending more than ever than they used to compared to what they used to. But actually, if you look at the uh, macro-level indicators of how well we're doing, customer satisfaction generally has gone down and then plateaued at a relatively lower le- low level in the 60s, 
customer loyalty has in fact fallen a lot and customer trust has uh, has fallen even further so even as companies are spending more and more money on marketing by our estimates roughly a trillion dollars a year in 2007 we were spending on advertising and sales and coupons and so forth um at the same time as the spending has gone up dramatically our output measures actually have gone down <clears throat> so while other business functions have been uh, doing more with less in a sense you could say that marketing has been doing less with more and we've also created a tremendous amount of clutter in the in the uh, in the culture you know huge amounts of advertising constant sales mm-hmm. promotions and the question that i asked was are we creating value what value are we creating in exchange for this 1 trillion dollars of spending mm-hmm. for society for companies and for customers Ideally, you want to be benefiting all of them at the same time. That's when you know you're right. doing something right. And I was hard-pressed to find good evidence to suggest that we are, in fact, creating a lot of positive value in all those areas. Obviously, we're creating some value. Uh, marketing does have value in terms of creating awareness and, uh, and um, you know, creating a more efficient marketplace. But for the, for the most part, there's a lot of inefficiency and ineffectiveness. Mm. So after documenting all of this for about eight or ten years, after showing that the I did a study on the image of marketing, and we found 85% of people have a negative view of marketing. So in addition to being ineffective and inefficient, there's also just negative connotations associated with mm-hmm. marketing. People just don't trust anything that comes from marketing, right? And so we we documented that. We had a conference and then a book called "Does Marketing Need Reform." Um, and I started a number of marketing uh, book projects that were actually continuing in that vein of of showing how bad things were mm. and then i got some good advice from uh, from a mentor and, and a co-author jack shit he said in this country people don't want to hear about the problem they want to hear about the solution right <laughs> isn't that the truth yeah. <laughs> yeah so i said wait a minute that just changes everything so my my project which i was working on at that time which was uh, about uh, bad marketing actually i turned it around and i just called it in search of marketing excellence oh i love it as a working title uh you know connecting to that in search of excellence book sure. and and basically asking a very simple question that can we find companies that spend less than their peers on marketing and yet have much higher levels of customer loyalty and trust yeah. and with that simple uh lens we found a number of companies for whom that was true uh and started to dig into why why that was and we thought it to the answer would be about how they budgeted for and spent their marketing resources mm-hmm. and we very quickly discovered that that wasn't it at all that it wasn't about the marketing i mean their customers were loyal and trusting and even loved these companies but uh, equally their employees were loyal and trusting too and loved these companies and their communities were deeply welcoming of these companies and they were deeply embedded in those communities and they had these long term stable supplier relations partnerships really Uh so we found that it was not just about the customer it was about all the stakeholders being treated the way customers should be treated by these companies and beyond that we also also found that there was something different about these companies in terms of why they existed so they were not there just to be another airline or another grocery store or or yeah. retail chain but there was some kind of a sense of mission or purpose to them there was something that they were trying to do in a different way and there was a higher calling behind it um that really drove the passion in the enterprise and also attracted customers and others to them. Well, and so did these companies make it known that this this was their their purpose, their thriving 
value, yes. what they made it known. So people yes. then aligned with that and then said, I like your product. Yeah, so there was a sense of authenticity there and a sense of uh, what we stand for. And as opposed to trying to find out what people want and then just, you know, creating marketing campaigns to tell them mm-hmm. what they want to hear, you know, this is coming from a place of authenticity and, um, and, and real belief in something. Right, so we found that the sense of higher purpose, and lastly, we found that they had different kind of leader uh, in place, where the leaders were not motivated by just power or by personal enrichment, but really they were driven by that purpose, and they were driven by service to people, and that's really what make them make made them much more effective and inspiring leaders. Is that they were missionary rather than mercenary or military style, you know, sort of the command and control or the CEOs just focused on the bottom line and the numbers. Mm-hmm. Now these people are really focused on the uh, on the broader purpose and people. Right. Well, so why do you think that the um, general population became so distrustful um, in, over time? And and you know what is it <laughs> that you know what what did we what was the tipping point where people said, you know, purpose of the company is important to me? You know, it just seems like that switch happened pretty fast. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, so what we uncovered about marketing is generally also true about business, as you point out, that there has been a level, a declining trust in business. If you look at Gallup's uh, data on trust in societal institutions, uh, or confidence in societal institutions, it has fallen steadily for the last yeah. 30, 40 years when it comes to big business. Uh, small business is still relatively okay in that setting, mm-hmm. but, but larger the company, it seems like the greater the uh, the distrust around that. And I think it's, a, it's an accumulation of a number of things. Um, you know, businesses are operating still according to a set of uh, paradigms, and beliefs and mental models that really date back to the industrial age, that date yeah. back to using the military as a metaphor for how to organize mm. a, uh, a business. Basically, organizations are structured on the military in terms of uh, the uh, command and control hierarchy and so forth. And and our view of human motivation is also kind of stuck in that industrial age way of thinking, which is all about carrots and sticks. Yeah. It's all about inducements and it's all about threats. So it's a lot of yeah. fear-based or you might even say greed-based motivation. And we human beings are actually uh, moving along in our journey of of what we call higher consciousness so that we actually are motivated by higher-order things. There's a a deeper sense of uh, hunger for meaning and purpose that people have in today's world compared to even 30 years ago. And there's a number of trends that uh, demographic and technological and other changes that, that have happened, which, which actually are feeding into all of that. So one of them has to do with the aging of the population. The fact that our median age is rising rapidly is now about 44 in this country, median age of adults. It's well into the high 40s in, in many other countries, in, in, in uh, Western Europe, for example. It's into the 50s in places like Japan. So when people reach midlife, and when the majority of people in society are in midlife and beyond, the value system shifts towards midlife values, which right. are much more around meaning and purpose and interconnectedness and interdependence and, and what kind of legacy are we going to leave behind and so forth. You know, so all of those values are coming to the forefront and they're being also uh, impacted by the, of course, invention of the World Wide Web in 1989, mm. which has created total information transparency, egalitarian access to all knowledge and information and what's going on in the world. Uh, we are infinitely more connected today 
electronically, mm. through social media as well as through uh, mobile technology. We're becoming more intelligent over time as a species. Our IQ is rising 3 to 4% every 10 years according to the Flynn effect. So you add that up over seven or eight decades, and the the impact is dramatic. And the average person is is you know, average person today. If you take them back to 1918, would be smarter than 98 percent of the people in the world. I mean, it's a oh, huge, wow. it's an unbelievable kind of a change. Um, and and also there's a as we call it the rise of feminine values in society. And after millennia of everything in the world being run based on the masculine values of domination, aggression, competition, short-term results, winning at all costs, uh, now we are much more collectively as human beings responding to the so-called feminine values of nurturing and caring and compassion and then realizing that those are the deeper human values. And society as a whole, as I said, is is moving in that direction. A lot of it has to do with the... uh, empowerment of women and the access to higher education, which has been a huge equalizer in the world. And as a result of which now we find that women are increasingly going to be dominating in a number of different white-collar professions. And that's going to fundamentally change the landscape. So the legal profession, medical profession, education, public service, etc., all of these are going to see a far greater number of women than men in years to come. Right, and so, and lastly, there's a rising consciousness. In addition to all of that, you know, we as a species are moving along. We're evolving. We're not, we're not standing still. Once we got up on our two legs, our our evolution has accelerated, but it's gone inward. Right, and and we have now a much greater sense of awareness of what's going on in the world, and with that, a greater sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. So many things that we have tolerated and even embraced throughout human history are now no longer, you know, they're unthinkable, right? Slavery and, you know, women not having the right to vote and colonialism and segregation and apartheid and, you know, child labor and environmental abuse and animal abuse. I mean, there are all kinds of things that are falling by the wayside. Yeah. Which were part of our normal human existence. So, you know, I remember um, many years ago hearing that Women made most of the buying decisions in most households. Yes. And so, you know, if that was happening, I would say like, what, 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, that statistic um, became pretty well known. What? Okay, so why did it take so long? (laughs) (laughs) There's a tremendous amount of inertia in the system and also the... You know, there's once, jokingly, I used a phrase at a conference, which people seem to like, that marketers are from Mars and customers are from Venus, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's really it's speaking a different language. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you look at Madison Avenue and ad agencies, basically it was full of young men at the time. Mm-hmm. Right? So not only were they mostly male-dominated, but it was also youth-dominated. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, your market is, is much more mature and much more towards the feminine side. So there's been a disconnect, and I think it's starting to change now. And we're starting to get in harmony. So this whole journey of conscious capitalism, as I said, for me, it came through the marketing lens. And that book that uh, that came out of that research was called Firms of Endearment about companies mm-hmm. that we love and, and why. And and it, the, those companies had the characteristics that I was talking about, stakeholder orientation, higher purpose, leaders who were driven by service and by people mm-hmm. and, and by purpose. And that then evolved into what we now call conscious capitalism. And that happened because I happened to meet John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, and shared with, I mean, he, we had featured Whole Foods in, in firms of endearment as one well yeah. of those companies. 
and I shared with him my vision for for building on this because the amazing thing was that we found that these companies that that treat all of their stakeholders so well and they have this sense of purpose they've got tremendous employee engagement they've got tremendous customer loyalty they've got you know great um uh, community types of outreach activities that they do. They're great for the environment. They pay taxes at a higher rate. And yet we found that those companies were also far more financially successful. Mm. And that should not be a surprise, but at the time it was a surprise because we still had a bit of that zero-sum way of thinking about business right. that, you know, there's no free lunch. So where, where do you get, you know, all of this money to spend on customers and employees and so forth? Right. But these companies we found in our research had outperformed the market by 9 to 1 ratio over 10 years. Right, dramatically better than the market. And and that outperformance actually has continued in the last five years since we published that book. So, you know, I found this was a very exciting and, and unusual way to think about business, that it's not business is not about profit maximization. Business is about purpose. Business is about service. Business is about the need to care and not just the drive for self-interest. You combine those two things, you get a very powerful way of doing business. And so what I was calling the Institute for New Capitalism, or INC, John said, well, I believe in exactly the same thing, but I I call it conscious capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that phrase really resonated with me. I do think that this is about higher consciousness and bringing that to bear. So business is great. Business creates a lot of value. It's an essential, uh, perhaps the most important aspect of society. But when you do it with higher consciousness, the positive impacts are multiplied, and many of the negative so-called externalities are minimized. In fact, we can create positive externalities of business while we're also creating financial wealth. Well, this is um, this serves a lot of questions in me, and we're going to have to go to break right now. But when we come back, we have a whole lot more to talk about with Raj Sisodia. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. 
for strategies, stories, and much more. Tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. Our guest today is Raj Sisodia, the author of Conscious Capitalism, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business. So let's talk about that title a bit. Raj, the, what, what do you mean by heroic spirit of business? Yeah, that, uh, that actually was uh, it's a very deliberate choice of words there. You know, if you look at the narrative about business in our culture, and probably it's a global thing, uh, what do people associate with business and capitalism generally that is built on a foundation of greed and exploitation mm-hmm. and, and selfishness, right? And if you talk yeah. to any idealistic, I was just with a group of young uh, high schoolers uh, in, in Maine a couple of weeks ago, and you talk to idealistic young people who want to change the world, mm-hmm. very few of them think about business as the avenue to do so because they say, oh, business is all about greed and self-interest and selfishness, right? So we've taken this idea of self-interest, which is what Adam Smith talked about, right? And yes. that's the fundamental driver of markets. Yes. But we have now morphed that or uh, you know, mutated that into this idea of uh, selfishness and greed. And somehow we have talked about them as as though they are virtues, right? as though that's okay. And we say, well, the invisible hand of the market takes care of it. Greed is good and, you know, being selfish is a response. You know, you must be selfish and all of that kind of, and, and kind of thinking. Uh, so there's a, there's a toxic narrative about business and capitalism in the culture out there. And, and no doubt there are companies that, that are, you know, that do uh, bad things and, uh, you know, the Enrons of the world and uh, Worldcoms and all the rest of them. But business in general gets painted with that broad brush. And all business is bad. You're basically yeah. guilty until proven innocent. So what we believe about business, that it is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a free human being. The human beings create value and they exchange value with each other. And our free market capitalist system is a great way to enable that and to create scale and efficiency and effectiveness from that. And if you look at the impact that that has had, you know, one of the most interesting parts of uh, doing the research for this book was looking at the data over the last several millennia and seeing where we have been as human beings. And you find that until as recently as 1800, our per capita income on this planet was $500 a year or less. That 90% of people lived on less than $1 a day in today's terms. That the default condition of humanity was one of abject poverty. And a very tiny fraction of, uh, of, of us lived reasonably well, but it really was at the expense of, of many others. And what you find over the last two centuries, since we have embraced the idea of personal and economic and political freedom, especially starting with this country, right, in 1776, the Declaration of Independence and the publication of the Wealth of Nations, coming soon after the Industrial Revolution was born in, the, in, in Europe, 
you saw those forces coming together and you've seen now an extraordinary rise mm. in human prosperity where we've gone from $500 to maybe eight or $9,000 per yeah. capita on a worldwide basis. Our lifespan, life expectancy has gone from 30 to 68, you know, where our population has been able to rise from 1 billion to 7 billion, where our literacy has gone from 15% to 85%, and there are many other indicators of human well-being. Yeah. And a lot of that, a lot of that really can be traced back to the embrace of, of free market capitalism and what, what that has enabled and the amount of value that that has created and what we therefore believe about business is that it's fundamentally good, first of all, because it's based on the creation of value. And in a free society, in a free market, a business that doesn't create value does not survive. Right. right? Secondly, that business is also ethical because it is based upon voluntary exchange. Businesses do not have coercive power over their customers or their employees or their community. You know, they, all they can do is offer choices. Yeah. Governments have coercive power. They can put you to jail, put you in jail, or put you to death if you don't do what what they believe is the right thing to do. Businesses only have the opportunity to uh, to offer you choices, and therefore it's fundamentally ethical. But beyond that, we believe that business is noble because it actually has elevated our condition. It allows human beings to live in a way that truly reflects what it means to be human. You know, when you're living a subsistence existence, as most people have throughout history. You really cannot explore what it means to be human. You don't have the time or the, or the resources to be able to engage in art or some of the finer pursuits. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote that I love that says, this planet used to be molten lava, and now it sings opera. <laughs> and where does that come from, right? I mean, that, that comes from human beings being able to reach for, for these higher things once their basic needs are taken care of. And business has really enabled that more than any other institution. And lastly, we believe business is heroic fundamentally because it alone has lifted billions of people out of poverty. Governments cannot do that. Governments cannot lift people out of poverty. And nonprofits cannot do that. And religious institutions cannot do that. All they can do is help in the short term. They cannot sustainably create a means for people to elevate themselves and to to gain a, a higher level of prosperity and therefore be able to do other things in life. And therefore, we believe that entrepreneurs are truly the great heroes of our of our age. They have created things, brought into being uh, ways that we live our life today that, that we simply take for granted. But the fact is that all of these things would not exist were it not for these institutions, right? When Henry Ford created the assembly line or somebody created this, you know, mobile phones, or, you know, all the magical things that we take for granted. Right. So that, you know, th- that is really uh, the institution and, and those are the individuals who have created the most value. So we should celebrate entrepreneurs. You know, mm-hmm. I'm now joining a school here, Babson College, which is renowned for its its embrace of entrepreneurship. It's the number one business school in the world for for teaching and fostering entrepreneurial thought and action. And I think that's the most essential element. You know, I go to other countries around the world. I mean, even India, you go back. There's still this vestige of thinking that says people want a secure government job, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's such a waste of human potential when the best and the brightest are looking for that. You know, we need to encourage people to be entrepreneurial, to actually create value for others. And by doing that, we uplift each other. And that's really what, what what's going to allow us to flourish in the future. You know, we've done a lot in a short amount of time, but clearly we cannot continue to do that in the same way because the environmental issues and all the other things that we are now facing as challenges, 
we need to continue to create prosperity and well-being, but we need to do it in a way now that is sustainable and that that recognizes the, the limits that we have on this planet. Well, the only seems, way to... Sorry to interrupt. Yes. So it seems that the opportunity for entrepreneurs now is is bigger than it has been in, you know, millennia. And it seems that the opportunity not only for them to create something, but to create something successfully yes. is is huge. And, you know, I and I, I can see so many entrepreneurial programs um, in university around the world. I am wondering if... Um, well, you, let me back up. So that you know, there is a um, a belief that a lot of the entrepreneurs um, are people, and have been for a long time, are people in the U.S. who have immigrated to this country. That they, more than people who are born here, have the vision to see possibility. Is that? true, or is that simply uh, something that people feel? Well, I don't know if, uh, if that is, I mean, that's not a field of, uh, of research of mine. I know that in Silicon Valley, for example, there is a high percentage of, uh, of engineers from India and China who have started a lot of enterprises, but I don't think it's, it's, it's um, you know, it's predominantly so across the culture. I mean, that's, mm. that's just one sector, one part of the country. Mm-hmm. I think this this country, within its DNA, is historically entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. But I do think that there is a danger that we are facing in that we are making it harder and harder for people. So on, on the one hand, we have all these great enablers of innovation and entrepreneurship, right. you know, because of technology and the access to that. And now, you know, so it's, it's very easy for one person, in a way, to come up with an idea and to implement that, especially in the in the world of uh, of, of, of the dot-com kind of yeah. domain. But overall, if you look at the ease with which we can start businesses and the amount of restrictions and regulations and and hurdles that you have to overcome, that is actually going the other way. Yeah. There's a uh, there's a study of the the, so the uh, economic freedom index, the amount of yeah. freedom societies enjoy and Worldwide, the United States used to be ranked number three on that list as recently as 2003, behind Hong Kong and Singapore, right? In terms of the amount of economic freedom there is, which which translates to how easy it is to start a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was 2003. Now, ten years later, the U.S. has fallen, I believe, to number 18. Right. So in wow. ten years, it has slipped 15 positions. Now. Part of it is other countries are embracing this, but I think a lot of it is a slippage here, in terms of overreacting and overreaching by the government, trying to regulate everything, trying to control everything. You know, the Small Business Administration has did a study a couple of years ago, and they estimated, and this is a, you know, an arm of the government, that they estimated, I believe, $2.6 trillion a year is the cost of regulation on, on, on the economy. $2.6 trillion. I mean, that's, that's a high percentage of our GDP. Right? And so what that's saying is that we are actually creating conditions that are making it much harder for people to follow their entrepreneurial instincts and to uh, create value for each other right. by making right. it so hard to, to not only start but then to continue to operate a business. Do, has that also um, become tougher since we had the great financial meltdown? I mean, because, you know, the money is being regulated in so much more. Yes. Yes. Has that affected this too? 
Uh, it has. Uh, you know, if you look at, of course, Sarbanes-Oxley dating back to uh, post-Enron kinds of reaction by, by, by the Congress. And now, of course, with the Dodd, what's it called, the Dodd-Frank, uh, right? Uh, again, I'm not an expert in that regulation, but these are yeah. massive pieces of legislation, thousands of pages with many rules yet to come. Yeah. Nobody fully understands, and it's a nightmare for companies that, that have to comply with this. We, we do need regulation. Don't, uh, I don't mean to suggest that we need you know, a complete uh, uh, deregulated uh, world out there, but we need well-thought-out, reasonable, limited regulation that, that actually accomplishes what it's trying to do. What we, in fact, create are these huge... Um, uh, tickets of regulation that then create opportunities for companies to find loopholes, mm. right? And into these legislations, we get all kinds of provisions and other things that get right. put in. And that, that really, what that does, ultimately, the growth of government interference in the economy gives rise to a growth in crony capitalism, because the way for companies then to survive and to do well is to try to figure out how to get around those restrictions or try to get favors right. uh, from the government. So that then feeds this real, what we, we do, we think of it as a cancer, the cancer of crony capitalism, right, what some people call capitalism. But that is really what is behind all of the angst and all the anger that people feel towards businesses, that they feel that big companies especially are able to compete in a way that's unfair in the marketplace right, right. because they you know they get these uh, regulations written to benefit them right and so that's that's really what people are against i mean very few people in this country would argue against true free market capitalism right right where the best companies that more create the most value yeah. are the ones that do do, do the best I and mean, that's how it should be mm. and i think whether you're a liberal conservative left right i mean you would agree with that but then when we run into uh, these these uh, conditions or situations where where companies get favored, large companies end up paying no taxes and they get all kinds of breaks, and yes. that's really the problem, I think. Right, right. A lot of the big multinationals that you know may be perceived as not necessarily um, adding value in a way that supports life or supports health or supports the planet, um, you know, yeah. tend to have the cash in order to turn around to legislators and politicians and, you yes. know, to influence the um, development of how companies get run. And, you know, it, that, I think, causes so much um, sadness and despair and mistrust and just sometimes a sense of resignation by just the average person on the street. You know, I hear people all the time saying, well, you know, I can't do anything about a company like, you know, I'll fill in the blank, you know, whether it's a Coca-Cola or an Exxon or et cetera, um, because they're so big, you know. And, and, you know, that the only thing people feel like they can do is, well, I cannot use their product. Yeah. But then people around the world are using their product. Um, you know, I was in Tibet uh, for a month in uh, September of last year. And I was very, it was interesting. You know, the Chinese have um, um, actually done some good things in terms of the infrastructure, the roads, etc. And I was also not so happy to see that there was so much trash all over the roads and all over um, in the mountains, etc. And the kind of trash that was laying on the ground 
was cans of Coca-Cola, cans of Red Red Bull, um, you know, things that are recyclable, but there aren't any systems set up there. And, you know, it makes me wonder about, you know, companies that are come in this category of conscious capitalism tend to have this belief that um, they're responsible for the consumer experience from beginning to end. So not only is the product or the service developed in a way that is humane and um, considers the planet, etc. But they look at the other end, too, and they say, so is this packaging recyclable? Is it reusable? Is it something that, um, you know, is not going to damage the earth? Can we do something about that? And, you know, what I find is that without legislation, without laws that then influence what happens to that. For instance, companies like I just mentioned go into places like Tibet, they drop their product and they say bye. They don't have to worry about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so how do we handle that as they're moving around the world? You know, I mean, it is free market. They can buy it. They don't have to be responsible for um, or they don't have to um, have programs that make sure or have regulations to say to the companies, um, oh, by the way, you know, this can of soft drink is your responsibility at the end when it's done. You know, what do we do about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, there, there is room there for reasonable regulation that, that sets standards, environmental and other standards. I think ultimately, to me, the answer is a higher consciousness within the organizations. Mm-hmm. Where, in fact, I mean, there are many companies that that actually have their own internal standards for those things that exceed what yes. governments will impose on them, and they will right. they will use their standards. So, even though in a particular country they might be able to get away with a lot of things that you know would not be acceptable at home, they don't do it because that's their own standard. And I think it's it's really just like we human beings can operate out of intrinsic motivation, or we can operate based upon extrinsic factors. You know, the carrots and sticks. Mm-hmm. The threats of punishment and the incentives, etc., that are laid out there. Yeah. Ultimately, those things don't work. They lose their effectiveness. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I mean, they can they can make you comply in the short term, but they often have unintended consequences as well. You know that uh, that that you don't even realize. So you need a mm-hmm. systems thinking perspective when you are putting into place those kinds of regulations. Otherwise, you end up with, as I said, the opposite effect sometimes. Right. But more right. than that, I think. To to us, the the common element really is if we can raise the consciousness of leaders, if we can raise the consciousness of not only companies now, you know, we're starting to think beyond capitalism and beyond business and start to think about a conscious society. Yeah. That we, you know, we need to have people in every field, whether you go into government or nonprofits or education or the media, whatever it might be, if you do approach it with a higher level of consciousness, when you start to see all of the consequences of your actions, you start to see how things are connected, you start to have that sense of right and wrong. right? And then I think all of the actions will follow from that, where you would, in fact, take care of the earth, you take care of people, and take care of all of the other factors. So to me, that's the, you know, of course, we have to have regulation, as I said, uh, a reasonable amount, well thought out, but that's not enough. We have to also work on the inner drive, you know. Mm-hmm. What and, and and as I said, there is a great uh, trend in this direction. There is a hunger yes. for people in in terms of finding meaning and purpose yes. and living more consciously. 
So I think all of the trends are, are in our favor in that, in that direction. Well, when we come back, um, I want to talk a bit more about the, the rise of transparency and the breakdown of the corporate structure. We'll be right back with Raj Fasodia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Wealth Solutions for the 99% is a weekly talk show focused on helping you develop and execute a game plan to build wealth. Your host, Paul LaJoy, who built a $50 million-plus company in less than five years, believes it's impossible to be poor in America, and he'll show you why with his innovative strategies. The show is upbeat, fun, and informative. Tune in every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Business. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with my very special guest today, Raj Sisodia. So, Raj, you know... One of the things that has been just on the rise is the, as you mentioned earlier in the show, is transparency, you know, transparency about finances, about ways products get created, uh, about even the personal lives of um, executives and people who make decisions around the world, around business. And, you know, this seems to be, you know, it seems to be, hitting organizations in a way that almost takes them down. And then it seems to go quiet and people say, oh, good, you know, one of the big bad bullies, you know, got their due. And, you know, it seems that the transparency factor isn't necessarily 
um, working across the board. There, there is no expectation. You know, it hasn't become kind of a cultural norm in organizations that there will be full disclosure, you know, except what's required in terms of the finances because of SEC rules, et cetera. Um, you know, do you see this increasing? Do you see transparency accelerating as we go forward? Well, transparency is coming whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all organizations, whether they're corporations or governments or any other entities, are essentially operating with glass walls. And there's nothing happening inside a boardroom that will not become public information if it needs to be. Mm. And the Don Tapscott wrote an interesting book about this a few years ago. I think he called it The Naked Corporation. Mm-hmm. And the basically, you know, all it takes is one person to, uh, to put the information out. It'll spread around the world. So if we are doing something that we don't want to see on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow, don't do it. Right, and that's right. becoming a fundamental check on on uh, behavior and transparency. If you look at it, it's, it's it's fundamentally a good thing. If you're doing good things, you have nothing to hide. Yes. Because the way Don puts it, I think flippantly, is that uh, you know, speaking of the corporation, the naked corporation, he said, if you're going to be naked, you better be buff. <laughs> right? So all these companies, all the organizations, better make sure that uh, you know what you're doing is is, is yeah. okay if it shows up in yeah. the public eye. And so I think transparency is a good thing for companies that are doing the right things and doing them in the right ways. It is something that's going to hurt companies that that are not doing those things. And and overall, that's a good thing because it's going to benefit uh, the companies that are doing things the right way. Yeah. And I think companies do not have a choice. They have to uh, either accept this or become victims by it. So you can convert this into a source of strength mm. if you're a company that is, in fact, doing all these great things for right. all your stakeholders. In fact, that becomes a way to enhance your your reputation and create greater goodwill out there once people learn more and more about you. I think there are companies that were, for example, the Container Store, which is one of the wonderful, great companies to work for in the United States, um, typically, their customers didn't really know how they were as a place to work. I mean, that's like a, that was a separate thing, and they won all these uh, awards, uh, you know, from Fortune and so forth. Right. And recently, they started to communicate to their customers what we stand mm-hmm. for, what our values are, etc. They're finding there's a great resonance there. Customers actually care about what kind of a company you are. You know, it's not just about what's the product or what's the price. Mm-hmm. So there is a benefit to those companies to, to, in fact, embracing greater and greater transparency. Whole Foods takes that perhaps to an extreme where their salaries are transparent. Every yes. well, 80,000 people there, and uh, any employee can find out what any other employee makes. And mm-hmm. that creates a tremendous um, need to make sure that, because when you have that kind of transparency, you have to have accountability to make sure that people are getting paid fairly. And that if somebody gets paid more, that there's a specific reason why that is. And you can find out, and you can find out what you need to do in order to increase your pay. Mm. Right? So, so I think all of that, that goes hand-in-hand hand with transparency. So, you know, I've been wondering for a long while about the corporate structure because it seems to me since about the, you know, 90s that the corporate structure... Um, I call it, it became ill. You know, it wasn't functioning at a very high level. And the the organizations, in the name of efficiency and effectiveness, 
started doing all kinds of reorganization, all kinds of, well, we don't need this skill right now, so you're out the door, and uh, we need this right now, so we're going to hire some new people, and we're going to do more with less, and et cetera. And, you know, this seemed to be um, the beginning of really burning people out, you know, and, and not caring, or not having that value of caring about people, and it, seeming like it was a big machine. And, you know, that has continued, and organizations have, you know, become better at um, maybe training people, helping them with career development, um, really um, supporting the team concept, and yet the corporate structure continues to be viewed as the enemy. And people say, you know, if I had my own way, I would have my own business, or I would do something um, that wouldn't require me to have to live all these rules, etc. And, you know, some of that I see, definitely the younger generation is saying that, as you said earlier. And so I wonder about the longevity of the corporate structure. You know, it seems to me that little by little, you know, that the the life of the corporate structure as we have known it is disintegrating. It is no longer useful. What do you think about that? Well, I agree that uh, corporations have to uh, adapt to this new world. So the traditional corporate structure, which is hierarchical, which, as I said, is modeled on the military. You've got a general at the top and foot soldiers at the bottom and all kinds of lieutenants and sergeants and so forth and in between, and command and control being the ethos and carrots and sticks being the the motivators. Uh, I think all of that is falling apart. And this view of the corporation as a machine or a business as a machine with inputs and outputs I mean, think about it, we take physical resources and we take what we call human resources and we convert that through this machine into financial wealth for some. And and, and that, that way of thinking, I think, definitely is, is, is going by the wayside. You know, human beings are not a resource in the right setting. A resource is like something, a lump of coal. You use it, it's gone, right? It does, people do burn out when you, when you treat them as resources and they start uh, behaving in that way. But in the right setting, human beings are a source like the sun, continuously generating light and warmth and energy and ideas and innovation and creativity and caring and so forth. And so the organizations in the future that will survive and thrive are the ones that will view themselves as these living entities. It's a complex living system. It has all of these elements within it which are all contributing to the flourishing of the whole. And the job of leaders is to ensure that the whole organism flourishes, as opposed to saying that, well, some stakeholders are more important than others, treating some as means, mm-hmm. others as ends, right, and, and people as, as cogs in that wheel, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to a, a different way of thinking, which is about empowerment, which is about decentralization, which is about allowing people the opportunity for, you know, autonomy, for uh, developing mastery, having a sense of purpose, all of those elements, I think, are possible within a different kind of an organizational form, which is much more loosely structured, which is more network, which is more decentralized, and so forth. I do agree with you that I think the command and control top-down hierarchy, you know, that doesn't work. That assumes that all the wisdom uh, resident is resident at the top, 
and right. everybody else just executes. The fact is that knowledge and intelligence and creativity and inspiration are diffused throughout the organization. And if you don't tap into that, then you simply will not survive. We will not be able to compete in this world. And so that implies that um, the um, shareholders of stock of these big companies will um, still be the ones that people want, that the organization wants to please. That's not going to go away as long as there's a stock market. But that these shareholders will have different values, that they will want to invest in companies that, that share these values. Is that right? Yes. So I think, you know, you use your money as a way of achieving or affecting a certain kind of change in the world. Yeah. Right? So shareholders, in addition to uh, financial returns, are also looking for impact. Yeah. They're looking for, you know, transformative change in, in the world. And, uh, and, and increasingly, you know, because it's the same people. The same people who are your employees are also, in many cases, shareholders. You know, it's all people ultimately making those choices, yeah. and they approach them with, with higher consciousness, and they will change how they act as customers, how they act as employees, how they act as shareholders, how they act as community members. Mm. They just view the world with a different lens when they, yeah. when they do that. And so the, that means also that um, the, some of the regulations probably need to change. I mean, if you think about institutional investment, and, you know, how that kind of money moves so fast. And the, the belief is that institutional money doesn't really care. It just wants profit, right? Is, do you think that will change? I think it is changing. Yeah. Know, I think there are, I mean, there's a, there's a fund on, in uh, New York now that is set up based upon the principles that we're talking about today because this is actually a better way to deliver results as yeah. well. But it matters how you make the money. So the fact is that these companies make money in the right way. And it turns out that because of the way the world has changed today, that they actually outperform the market mm-hmm. while they're creating other kinds of wealth. So there are hedge funds now, and there are private equity firms that are part of our network that are also looking at investments with this lens, so trying to identify companies that share these, these perspectives and these values. I'm speaking at a, uh, a conference in Colorado, which is the SRI conference, I think it's called, where there are money managers with about $3 trillion of assets under investment, mm. which are looking at socially responsible investing, as they call it. Uh, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a richer lens with which to look at that. It's not just responsible, it's aligned. Right? Responsibility somehow suggests that there's an added sort of a tax or a burden on top of an existing business model to now make sure that you're doing responsibly what you're already doing. But now what we're saying is that you can actually rethink your whole business model and align it with society, not just be responsible, but actually fundamentally what you're doing is good for all stakeholders. Mm. And you don't have to add on a separate uh, element of so-called responsibility. You know? So I think definitely uh, those those trends are also there. Uh, the investment world is, is seeing. And, and as I said, we're accumulating more and more evidence that this way actually works better from a financial perspective as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not asking people to make a trade-off, which is what historically it's been. Yeah. If you wanted to put socially responsible investments, you had to be willing to live with a delta of slightly lower returns. Right. But that doesn't have to be the case if you do it smartly. I think it's, it's worth going from being, as my friend has written a book recently called From Smart to Wise. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're becoming more wise about these things. We're gaining wisdom. You know, that comes with higher consciousness. 
Well, this is definitely giving us hope. We love your message, Raj. In the book, uh, Conscious Capitalism, you dedicate it to your children and your nephews, and you say, don't fear the future, but welcome it with love, joy, courage, and optimism. You sure have given us a lot of that today. So, Raj, I know people are going to want to know more about you and, and how to reach you. How can they do that? Uh, well, I have a website, uh, uh We also have consciouscapitalism.org, where they can learn a lot more about conscious capitalism and upcoming events. We have a CEO summit that's coming up in October in Austin. Um, and, you know, there are many other, many other events as well that are, that are listed on there. So, and, and uh, they can also reach me at, uh, at babson.edu, uh, you know, on, on the right. faculty page. Right, right. Well, we are so honored to have had you here today, Raj, and um, we look forward to having you back again as things evolve in our world and, and move toward a, being a better place to, to live. Um, Raj Sodia, the book is Conscious Capitalism, Liberating the Heroic Spirit of Business. Thanks, Raj. Really Thank appreciate you. you being with us. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Now, remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.